You don't want to miss this episode with Elaine Taylor Klaus, the owner of Impact Parents. Learn about radical compassion, the process of change, progress, not perfection, and the coach approach to parenting complex kids. This podcast, Special Needs in Motion, is dedicated to helping individuals learn to move and function at their best. Listen along to learn a little and maybe even laugh and be inspired. Please review and share so others can have access to our community. I'm your host, Ilana, a physical therapist, product developer, mom, wife, author, blogger, and podcaster. I love a great discussion, coaching the families with whom I work, and finding solutions. I love putting the fun and play into therapy. And it is a pleasure to be your host. Just a quick note, if you'd like to sponsor an episode, please reach out to me at specialneedsinmotion.com or just check the show notes. And any information shared here should not be taken as direct advice. You know the drill. Consult your local therapist, professional, or doctor before trying any suggestions. Well, let's go. This is Ilana, the host of Special Needs in Motion, and welcome to another podcast episode. This evening, I'm here with Elaine Taylor-Klaus. Elaine is an author, parent educator, and certified coach. She's the co-founder of Impact ADHD and the co-creator of Sanity School, an online behavior therapy program. She provides coaching, training, and support for parents of complex kids and parents raising kids in complex times. Her newest book, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids with ADHD, Anxiety, and More, just came out and is available on Amazon. Elaine has served as a parent advisor for the American Academy of Pediatrics and on the National Board of Directors of CHAD. She is the mother of an ADHD family of six, and she is a friend. So welcome, Elaine. Thank you. It is super great to be with you. Well, I'm so excited to have this talk, you know, as a therapist, as a mom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) living also in a family of people with ADHD, uh, this topic is near and dear to me. So I know you've put your passion and time and energy over many years into growing Impact ADHD, and now it's Impact Parents as well? I was going to say, yeah, now we're Impact Parents. Yeah, we have expanded to try to represent better all of the different parents that we serve, not just parents of kids with ADHD, but parents of all kinds of complex kids. Awesome. So tell us just a little bit, I touched a little bit on your professional background, but why this passion? Um, Because, you know, like so many moms, I think in this day and age, uh, they say that necessity is the mother of invention, but I think motherhood is the necessity of invention. (laughs) Uh You know, I had one and then two and then three complex kids and they did not come with an instruction manual. And I really struggled for the first, really for the first decade or more of raising them to try to figure out how do I be the kind of parent they need me to be when I could barely figure out um, who they were or what they needed, much less what I was struggling with to, to help them. So, you you know, know, it's funny because like those bells go off later, you know, when they're older, you're like, Oh, if only I'd understood that. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like I just, I didn't know, I just knew it shouldn't be so hard. 
Like it didn't have to be that hard. And, and I don't blame anybody because nobody else knew how to help make it any easier than, you know, for me, than, than I was seeking help everywhere I could, asking every expert I could find. But it was just, it was complicated and it was compounded by the fact that there were multiple diagnoses. I wasn't dealing with just one diagnosis, um, which I think is extremely common for a lot of families. And, um, and I just kept searching for answers until I finally had this sort of epiphanous moment where I realized that the change started with me, not with them. You know, that is probably, if, if I could express one thing, is that reflection back on ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, to look inside as to how we're parenting, because it's so easy to point the finger, either yes. blaming schools. Bl- I mean, I went through this, too, because I have... I would say complex children and, you know, just never fit into the box. Right. Um, I still struggle with it, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I'm me too. But, and I think part of what happens is when we start off parenting, I mean, think about it. You and I were both pretty young when we started too. You were even younger than I was. When we start off parenting, like we're all we have is is what was modeled for us, right? So we look around and we try to fulfill what we think we should be doing as a parent or what our parents did or grandparents mm-hmm. or like we're living all of these other people's expectations. And I think it, it does take a while as a parent to realize that you can't raise your kid according to everybody else's expectations. You've got to kind of figure out what yours are mm-hmm. and figure out who the kid is and what they need based on on, on what they're bringing to this journey, because every one of them is on a very unique journey. Right. I loved in your book, you touched on this idea of you grew up having these calm family dinners. <laughs> and then in your family, they were climbing on the chairs. And I could so relate to that. And it just made me chuckle, you know, but <laughs> you're like, at some point, you're like, hey, this is not going to work for me to model that family. This is my family. Well, and that's what, and I remember that night because I laughed out loud when I sort of noticed it. And I said to my, all of my kids, could you imagine behaving like this at grandpa's house? And they all cracked up and thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever said. Right. And I, and that's when I realized I had been trying to make them behave as if they were at my parents' house. Uh-huh. And, and they didn't need to, to be that in our house. That's not mm-hmm. the kind of parents we were. And that's not to judge my parents at all. It's just, you know, it was a different family, different parenting, different environment, different kids, everything. And then also sometimes two parents are on two different approaches, right? Like one of them is maybe fear-based kind of parenting <laughs> yeah. for whatever they want, like that we're projecting onto our children. What, yeah. You know, I think that I get more of that in my practice. A lot of the of the parents who choose to work with me, especially when it's a mom, not when a couple, because I do a lot of work with couples, too. But oftentimes she'll say at some point, you know, I don't really have any model for parenting. I, I don't like I don't want to parent. All I know is I don't want to parent the way I was parented and I don't know how else to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when you have, you know, one parent who's sort of locked into authoritarian worked for me, you know, or authoritative or, you know, and, and then another who's like, I have no idea. It, whatever the, the mix of the two, it can be really confusing for yeah. parents because I think it's interesting. I was interviewed about this earlier this week. There's this last week. There's a notion that somehow we're supposed to be on the same page. 
And I think that we collapse that and confuse that with we're supposed to parent the same way. And they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You can be on the same page as parents and parent very differently. And in fact, that's a gift to your kids. Yes. You know, to be who you are as a parent and let them know that and know how to navigate that teaches them more about how to have relationships with different kinds of people in their lives. Right. That has taken me a very long time to mm-hmm. really portray this respect for my partner with yes. toward my children to say, okay, he's doing this a little differently. That's okay. You know? mm-hmm. He's, he's going to do it the way he does, and I'm going to do it the way my, my I do, and it's not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And that so, is okay. So let me ask you, um, with ADHD just specifically, because a lot of times I get questions from parents, you know, do you think my child has ADHD? Or maybe I'm seeing a lot of symptoms and it's... And, it's not even brought up, you know, yeah. or I'll say, oh, we're going to work on this skill. It's going to work on focus, attention. And like, oh, my child has great focus attention. They like to play with their little light up toy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so what does that complex diagnosis kind of look like? Like, what are some other parts of it? Well, so first, I just want to I love what you said, which is that complex diagnosis, because ADHD is one of the most complicated conditions that is really misunderstood. So thank you for phrasing it that way, because that's one of the biggest problems I think parents face. There's all this stigma and shame around it as if it's just, well, my kid won't listen or, you know, my kid can't focus. But, but ADHD is, is a challenge of dysregulation, a problem with self-regulation. So some people will say it's about executive function. Um, There are a lot of buzzwords and code words, but at the Bottom line, it's about the ability to self-manage, and it's delayed in kids with ADHD. And and it shows up in kind of five key areas. It shows up in organization, in emotion management, and that's kind of new. Ten years ago, that was not the case, but now we have some clear research. We know that that's a piece of it because that's an executive function piece. So organization, emotion, let's see if I can get all of these, attention or focus, Um, It shows up often as impulsivity and then sometimes as hyperactivity, but not always. Sometimes the hyperactivity is internal, like the brain is going, but the body's not. And sometimes the the kids are bouncing off the walls. So there are these five key areas where it could show up, but any given kid with ADHD may not manifest in all of those areas. Mm -hmm. And so... That's very helpful because we're we're not locked into one area of just- No, but there's this assumption that if they can focus, like, oh, my kid doesn't have ADHD, he can play video games for hours. Mm-hmm. Well, that's called hyper-focus. And it's, it's not about whether or not a kid can focus. It's whether they can manage or regulate their focus. Can they choose what to focus on? When the right time is to focus on it, can they sustain their focus? Can they let go of their focus when it's time to transition to something else? All of those are pieces of focus. It's not just about whether they can pay attention or not. And that's just one of the five characteristics, right? So it's a really complicated condition. Okay. And if people read your book, they'll get a little more information about that. Yeah. Actually, the the truth is that the real explanation of that is in the first book. It's called Parenting ADHD Now. And the first couple of, it's mostly a book of strategies, but the first couple of chapters gives you a really solid explanation of 
what is ADHD? What are the five different characteristics? Um, talks about executive function. And it talks about what is recommended treatment for ADHD. So as a kind of basic primer for ADHD, I think that's the best resource, Parenting ADHD Now. And then the new book, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids, is really about how do you as a parent get your head around whatever the issues are that you're dealing with? How do we begin to think differently about how to parent these complex kids? Okay, awesome. I love that you've expanded it, you know, to cover children with more complex diagnoses. Yeah, that's really I've been I've been wanting to do that for years and years and years. So I'm really excited to finally be talking more broadly. Because you know, when I did my research, Alana, I, I want to say the number was crazy. It's like 86% of kids with ADHD had some coexisting condition. Mm-hmm. Um, if you expand that to include things like asthma and allergies and celiac disease, any any chronic condition that requires self-management and self-regulation. Mm-hmm. is, you know, is a coexisting challenge, particularly with attention issues. So whether the kid has the attention issues or not, if if you have a medical condition of any kind, whether it's anxiety or learning differences or metabolic conditions, um, if a kid needs to learn to become their own medical manager, then this approach that we talk about, we call it the coach approach, is really a, a masterful way to empower kids to become their own to take ownership of themselves. Wow. I love that. I love also the idea that everyone makes mistakes, but those with ADHD or more complex diagnoses make them more often and fall harder. That's from your book. Yeah. And then then there's this shame and stigma. And when I read that, I almost cried because it just touched me. So because I believe I would have been diagnosed Mm-hmm. That, you know, if this was going on when I was younger and I was just in a like very creative child, but very impulsive and just making bigger mistakes than my siblings. I felt. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I was similar, only I had so much anxiety that I wasn't like I was terrified of making mistakes. So I would I would over control to avoid the mistakes, mm-hmm. which had this other cascading sort of impact and social, social impact that came with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Update us on the latest. In other words, you, you touched on the coaching, uh, you know, what seems to be working and why, and if it's coaching, why, why is that working so well? So I think coaching works. So I would say, yes, what we've learned in the last decade is that the coach approach really works. And, and I think there are two key reasons. One is because the focus is on the parent, not the kid. And so this is not about what the kid's doing. It's about how are we relating to whatever they're doing? How are we creating an environment to help them be successful? How are we talking to them and encouraging them and and motivating them and empowering them? Um, I I had a client once who said to me what she loved most about this work was that she was doing the work and her kid got to be a kid again. And that, didn't that just break your heart? Uh Um, So, so when we focus on us and really think about, I mean, the job is parenting, right? It's our job. Right. <laughs> it's what we have to do. So when we really focus on who, who do I want to be and how do I want to be as a parent, then what we're doing is creating an environment for our kids to, to, to be successful and to be their best selves. So I think that's the big part. And the other thing is that coaching is, it's an empowerment-based 
modality, if you will. It's the, it, the whole thing about coaching is about helping people reach their full potential. So we're not training parents to become coaches, but we're teaching them skills from the world of coaching so that they can take a coach approach with their kids so that they can create an environment that is empowering for their kids, that's uplifting, that's inspiring, where the kids can see their potential and see their strengths and see what they're capable of instead of what happens very often is this sort of disability world that sees them as broken and, mm-hmm. and you know, needing to be fixed. And there's just nothing that can take the wind out of a kid's sails than feeling like you're broken. Yeah. And criticized. And- yeah. Like no matter what I can, what I do, I can't, it's never going to be good enough. And so we really want to create an environment where parents understand. And, and so coaching is all about empowerment. Like, how can you be your best self and, and self-awareness? And, mm-hmm. and our kids, more than typical kids, really need to be taught self-awareness. It doesn't come naturally. We actually get to teach it to them. I think even if you removed all the diagnosis, this approach is good for us as human beings. Just yes. living in this world, learning about ourselves, becoming better people. And I don't, from what I'm listening, I don't think this would ever be too late. No. Even if you've already raised your your <laughs> your group, you've sent them out there, you know, I think this can be modeled just Yes. Absolutely. I have a mom who is a who's a, one of the trainers in our pro we t- we train local providers to teach sanity school around the world. And one of our trainers has a 40-year-old kid yeah. um, that she has begun to shift how she's communicating. Because there, you know, there are a lot of people out, out there right now with with young adults in their 20s and 30s and even into their 40s who are, who are what we would, might call failing to thrive, who are really having a hard time. We did all we could to accommodate our kids and mm-hmm. get them education and all of that stuff, but we, we, nobody really taught us how to prepare them to be adults. That is so true. I was just having this conversation with a friend and I was saying, I think we loved our children too much. And I don't mean that that's a bad thing, but we were like feeding them, hugging them, dressing them, and we just forgot about this whole emotional, or I don't Mm. know if we forgot, but we just didn't know how. I don't think we knew how. I mean, I think about what it was like when our kids were little. And how that shifted for me. And from, as I say, you know, I was about 10 years into it when I discovered coaching and it was like the best blessing my, my family ever got. And my kids will tell you, it was a couple of summers ago, actually, I think our kids were like, I don't know, 17, 21 and 24 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they all came to us individually because my husband is now a coach as well. I mean, it was transformational in our lives. Um, you know, the joke in the coaching world is the best kept personal growth secret in the world is coach training. Yes, right? it sounds like it. <laughs> it's amazing. So my kids came to us one after the other, independent of each other and independent of, of my husband and me, and came to each of us and said, thank you for being coaches. Thank you for being a coach. Oh, they were so- able to see how it had shifted their way of being, how it changed the way they were in relationship with their friends. And they were able to see the way that it impacted our family dynamic in a way that their friends didn't have. It was really, it was amazing. Oh, well, kudos to you and what you've done. It's just incredible. Thank you. Well, it's coaching. It's not me. As I say, I I didn't make it up. I just, I just organized it really well. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, you know, that was that creative brain you have. So, yeah. Um, okay. So tell me how is COVID affecting kids and parents with complex, you know, children? You know, it's this interesting enigma. There are some who are really struggling and I don't want to take away for a minute from the, from the challenge and the pain and the frustration that a lot of families are going through right now. It's scary. It's uncertain. A lot of our kids don't do well with uncertainty. So there's that layer on top of it. Um, and so there, there is that going on. And particularly parents of younger kids, like kids five to eight, are, they really struggle. This whole schooling on Zoom thing is, it, you know, <laughs> five-year-olds do not belong in Zoom University. You know, let's just be serious. So there's that. But on the other hand, there's this other thing that I'm witnessing in our community, which is not only closer family connections, but parents understanding their kids for the first time and how they learn and being able to create an environment that helps them be more successful in school. And, you know, I keep saying, don't let school get in the way of your kid's education, you know, and, and parents are finding different ways to be with their kids around this. And I think I've got more parents who are homeschooling on by choice now than ever mm -hmm. before. Um, I've, I've just seeing this, there's this one segment, at least of my community where there is a, there's a shift for the better. The other thing that's happening is, is because parents are at home and kids are at home and everybody's kind of doing their job. Kids job is school. Parents job is work. There's a different kind of respect happening for each other's work that, yeah. and, a, and a different kind of ownership that's happening. The kids kind of are seeing their parents and seeing what, that their parents actually do have something else they have to do. And the, there's just a mutual respect that I see building that's very different and I think really positive. That's beautiful. I concur with you. I think my children for the first time have seen what I do. Yeah. And that's been really eye-opening for them because I would say, oh, I'm going to treat a child. And they, would, they didn't know what that meant. So I've been doing a little bit of telehealth. So they've seen that. But also, um, I agree. I've seen the parents that I work with. And I do some in-house, some telehealth. Mm -hmm. But for a while, it was just telehealth. And I saw the parents had to do the therapy. Yeah. They had to become, I was more of a coach. They became more of a therapist. And I saw these light bulbs going off. And yes. the parents like, oh, my gosh, he balances really off. <laughs> or, wow, like this this rocker board is really awesome. Oh, and then they would come up with ideas. So, yeah, it's been really, that's been the silver lining for, for me mm -hmm. and for the family. So there's so much more involved. I think so. And, and in some ways, that's kind of like what, what I'm, I'm saying about coaching is that when we understand what's going on better, we can respond to it better. Right. And what you're describing is the same when they understand, oh, this is what I'm working on here. And the problem with, with like when we look at the traditional school environment, like when treating ADHD classically, you know, one of the things that every psychologist gives their person when they diagnose them is some kind of a, of a plan for a reward chart or a star chart or, you know, some kind mm -hmm. of something like that. And, and the truth is that they rarely or often don't work. And it's not that they're flawed. The reason they don't work is because the people executing them don't really understand what they're trying to do with them. Right. 
right? Whether it's the teacher or the parent, if they don't understand it, if they don't understand, like I'm trying to address impulsivity here, what's underneath the, the behavior, then it doesn't really matter what they're doing because they don't have the depth around it, the, the context around it. But when the adult understands the context, they can help the child understand the context. Right. And that's where the magic happens. Uh-huh. Okay. I get that. How a lot of the listeners on this podcast are parents of children with special needs, like a lot of physical limitations. Mm-hmm. I have physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists listening. Yeah. And so we have this multiple kind of hidden diagnoses that maybe are all under that big umbrella. And then we have these physical limitations also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know maybe that's not an area of expertise for you, but I can imagine you could give us some tips because sometimes we're trying to reach goals, let's say, you know, and we've got a child that can't focus on yeah. what we're trying to do. Well, so here's what's coming up as you, as you ask that. And because I've worked with a lot of parents of kids with, with physical disabilities, cerebral palsy in particular, um, you know, kids with, with metabolic conditions. I think what we have to remember, our, our goal here is incremental change, right? The goal is progress, not perfection. And so it doesn't really matter whether what you're working on is a physical shift or an emotional shift or, a, or you know, organizational shift. It, the process is the same. Mm-hmm. It's always about create the vision of what you want, the changes that you want to see, make it small enough that it's attainable and realistic. So we call it taking aim in our realm, but set a realistic goal. Go through the process of collecting information and planning and problem solving and take the kid through the process of problem solving. Practice it, try it, go back and rinse and repeat what worked, what didn't work, what do you want to try again? And it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about, you know, motor coordination or emotional regulation. (laughs) the process is the same. That's how change happens. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else that I picked up on when I started working with children many years ago, but I had to kind of let go of my old school PT of these like really standard goals. I still set goals. We have to, mm-hmm. but I had to let, cause all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like these children, <laughs> this is a whole new generation of children. Even mm-hmm. the ones with complex diagnoses and physical limitations, they're just, they're responding differently and they, they seem to be a lot less focused to, or more impulsive. And, and I had to reconfigure things and really work on the relationship that I had with those children. So we talk about it in terms of, you know, meet them where they are. Right? Yes. We have got to figure out who's the kid in front of us. And if we're, you know, if you're raising multiple kids in a family, as you and I did, every one of them is going to be different. So you have to meet each kid where they are mm-hmm. and raise the bar from there and, and know that it, just because it worked for your eldest doesn't mean it's going to work for your youngest or vice versa. And because each of them is this sort of unique individual and they each have to, we have to guide them on their process. But I think the key to any of this is is to understand that it's about the process of change that's most important for these kids, because that's where they struggle. They don't understand how to create and put a process in place, much less how to follow through with it. 
And it's when we help them see the process and practice again and again, going through a process, that's when they really learn self-management. And it's subtle. It's nuance. It's not big stuff. It's little stuff. And that's why we, we often miss it if we're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Where does respect and compassion fall into place? Uh, it's at the core of absolutely everything. <laughs> okay. Like, in the book, I talk about radical compassion, right? Um, and I think we need to practice radical compassion for our kids and radical compassion for ourselves and for our teachers. And like, mm-hmm. it's just None of this is is easy. I, we had a team meeting for my company today, and we were talking about just adulting. You know, and yeah. nobody told us how hard adulting is going to be, <laughs> right? Right. So I think compassion is huge, and and I think respect. So you had said a little bit you had to get a new relationship with your students, with your kids, and. And that's really, it's all about relationship because relationship is where trust lives and trust is where learning lives. Like kids have to be trust, feel trust in order to be open to learning and receptive to learning. Mm -hmm. And they get that trust when they feel connection, when they feel respected. And, you know, that old school notion of demanding respect to me is just, it's so, you know, maybe it worked in in a different time. I don't know. But I know that it doesn't work in today's world and that you can't. I don't think it's ever worked. And I think people that, like you said, have that respect, have given it over through attention, love, understanding. Mm -hmm. That's how it got built. Yeah, you you earn it. You don't demand it. That's right. And, and, you know, that, but there are a lot of parents that really struggle with that because I'm the parent, because I said, so they should respect me because I would never have done this in my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And that may be all true. And, you know, you can, you can help guide, you can mold a kid's behavior by fear, but what you're not molding is ownership. You're molding reactivity. Wow. And if you really want a child to feel ownership, that comes from respect and, and engagement and buy-in. Wow, that is so well said. How can we work with procrastination? <laughs> <laughs> so understand that procrastination is not a thing. It's actually made, it's a it's actually a composition, a compilation of a bunch of things. So you have to understand what's behind the procrastination. So maybe procrastination is a working memory issue. Um, maybe procrastination is a lack of clarity or, or organization. Maybe procrastination is boredom. May, you know, like you have to understand what's causing the procrastination in order to address it. But it doesn't exist in and of itself. It's actually made up of, you know, multiple different Layers. Uh, factors or things that could be causing it. In the ADHD world, oftentimes procrastination happens either because somebody, because it's just too boring or because it it feels like it's going to be too much effort. And so effort is a big issue in the ADHD world that is, that is under-recognized how hard it is to exert effort. Um, I was looking, do you know the Zitz comic strip? No. Okay. So one of my favorite comics is the, you know, it's a 17 year old teenage boy named Jeremy, who is so clearly ADHD. It's hysterical. And the mom's a little hyper controlling. 
And there's this comic where, where she's trying to get him to walk across the kitchen without his shoes because she's mopped the floor. And you <laughs> see him jump on the table, on the counter, on the cabinet. On the, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, you could have just take your shoes off. He said, no, too much effort. <laughs> <laughs> and it just kind of captures it. It's like what's effort to one is not effort to another. But in the ADHD brain, if it feels like it's going to be effortful, they're very likely to just not do it. And so we have to break. That's why we break it down. That's why we chunk it. That's why we decide what's the first step. There are a lot of strategies you can use to address it if that's what's causing it. But if, if it's actually not being caused because it's, because it's effortful, but because it's boring or because there's a working memory and they forgot, then you have to address it differently. Mm-hmm. And um, how does boredom, I, I, I love, you mentioned this in the book and I was just like, ooh, that's so fascinating. But the connection between boredom and anxiety. I mean, what I know about complex brains is that when we're bored, it, it can create a kind of a stress, like, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that could, that could certainly lead to an anxiety. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many, boredom is, is one of those things that, that, that is the enemy of all things productive <laughs> in a complex brain, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard because we can dismiss it as well too bad, but, but if it's boring, then there's no, you know, dopamine and there's the chemicals aren't firing and it's really hard to get anything done. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is related, but I've spoken to a speech therapist after someone I knew had had like a traumatic incident and she mm-hmm. was explaining to me, you know, the amygdala and the frontal lobe. And yeah. she was saying that what happens is that amygdala just keeps getting fired off. And while it's being fired off, you're almost in this panic response. And then you yep. can't really be productive at all. But if you can stimulate the frontal brain, which is like planning and executing and puzzles and things like that, then creativity, then it's almost like it puts the amygdala at rest. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I kind of see it differently, but I like that description. I mean, the way I kind of see it is what happens is when once the amygdala gets fired or triggered or whatever, um, you know, the veritable saber-toothed tiger is at the door of the cave, right? And it doesn't really matter what triggers it. Once it's triggered, the the amygdala takes over and the rational brain ceases to be in charge. Mm-hmm. So the goal of reclaiming, of, of getting back into a rational space is to start by recognizing that you're triggered in the first place and then doing something to reclaim the brain. That's what we call it. Something to to calm the brain down, whether it's deep breaths or drinking water or doing push-ups or walk, taking a walk or, you know, taking a shower, um, you know, doing some sensory. So this is an interesting thing. You'll love this. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of research in the realm of positive intelligence around um, sort of sensory mindfulness exercises mm-hmm. and and how very quick short mindfulness exercises if you do them repetitively actually recircuit rewire the brain and enable you to recover faster from amygdala hijacks. You know, I've seen that also with eye-hand coordination, especially mm-hmm. some research, especially if it's combined with cognitive processing. So in other words, like you may, 
uh, bounce a ball from right hand to left hand. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're crossing midline and you're counting by twos. So wow. something like that. Um, That's great. You can't do that in a meeting, though. No. <laughs> the beautiful thing of the sensory is you can sit there and rub the seams of your pants while you're talking to someone and getting stressed out, and it'll calm you down. That's true. That's true. right. Like it, it's really, but but the, what's important, and I love the bouncing the ball back and forth. That's I'm going to play with that one. Um, what's important about it is is the is that you have to recognize that you're getting triggered, and make the effort to stop the trigger to reclaim the brain before you move into re- recovering into having a conversation about what was going on or thinking what what the mistake that families make more often than anything is they get into what we call fake calm you know somebody's getting triggered somebody's yelling somebody's upset everybody goes okay i'm calm down now and they're not <laughs> right and if you're not, then you really, you're still operating from the amygdala hijack. You're not yet back into the frontal lobe. So I'm sure she's right that there's a way to reclaim the brain by using the frontal lobe. I've just, I've not heard of it, but it's fascinating. But I, like one of my kids, she, when she needs to calm down, she'll puzzle or Sudoku or something yes. like that. That's her calm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what she was referring to is it. Well, I used to have panic attacks and what I found mm-hmm. helped was like cleaning out a drawer. Or yes. On, so. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, or chewing a piece of ice or, yeah, yep. no, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally with you. Well, I was thinking about when, when my middle kid was at, um, she was in a dys- dyslexia program in a special needs school and um, the teacher would keep Sudokus in the box, you know, in her little cubby. And whenever and whenever she finished like something stressful, like a writing assignment, because she has dyslexia, she got to go do a Sudoku. That was her reward. Wow. Good teacher. Yeah. Great teacher. Really great um, teacher. Okay. So you're welcome to share anything else you want to talk about, but I'd love to know what's going on now at Impact Parents, you know, some of the resources that are available I would love to. Impact Parents is so Impact Parents is is an expansion. We've been Impact ADHD for a lot of years and we we didn't want to leave ADHD. We just wanted to add to it. So the the main company is now called Impact Parents. We still have an an Impact ADHD blog, which is a really amazing award-winning blog. And now we have an Impact Anxiety blog and an Impact Complex Kids blog. So there's a lot of really good just information resources on the site. At impactparents.com. Okay. Um, okay. And they can also, and there's coaching, right? And people can. That, s- yeah, yeah. And that's what I was going to say. And what we're learning more and more, Alana, is that parents are really good at collecting information, but they're not always necessarily good at figuring out what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. And so we're re- where we really focus is helping you figure out how. So now that you know what, what your kid's diagnosis is or what's going on or you're getting treatment, what do you do now? How do you manage it? And so we teach something called Sanity School, which is Sanity School for Parents. It's a behavior therapy training program for parents, and it's recommended treatment for kids with ADHD, executive function issues, anxiety, um, because again, it's about teaching the parent how to create a framework, an environment that's that really supports the child. So um, that's our that's like where we always encourage people to start with with us with training is with the sanity school program. And then, yeah, we offer group coaching and private coaching as well. 
for people who really want to help implementing what they're learning. And it's for kids of all ages, like three to 33. I mean, it's just doesn't really matter what age. I was just going to ask you, like, are you going to be expanding to this? So it doesn't matter. They could be adults. Yeah, they can be young adults. You know, I, I actually quote you all the time because you said to me once years ago, when we first came out with Sanity School, you said it was really helping you shift your conversation with your then, I want to say, 24, 25-year-old, mm-hmm. right? That's and that really, that really stuck. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter how old your kids are. What matters is how are you communicating with them and how are you shifting from a lot of parents get stuck in what we call phase one parenting, you know, that old model of directing them and motivating them and telling them. And what we really want to do is teach parents, how do you begin to transfer ownership? How do you shift into more collaborative collaborative parenting and then move into a support role where your kids are actually leading their lives and you're supporting them with their in, involvement, right? With their permission. Um, and so there's sort of stages that we go through as parents and what Sanity School does and our group coaching does, all of our programs are designed to guide parents through that process of transferring ownership to their kids. Excellent. And so, and so the, and then the new book, the essential guide kind of brings all of that together and, and gives you some stories to back it up. Excellent. So I think I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours I can too. Um, I love it. <laughs> but I think we've hit on a lot of different topics here. And I just so appreciate your time with this. And I think it's going to impact and empower our listeners to be better people, better parents, better therapists. Well, thank you for inviting me and, and having this conversation and for, for spreading the word because I think that what we found is something pretty special and different and unusual. And I um, agree with that. You know, I'm just trying to, to reach as many parents as possible. My goal is is that that parents don't spend the first 10 years like I did feeling lost and that kids will grow up feeling empowered in a way that I didn't as a kid. And it sounds like in some ways you didn't either because we didn't understand ourselves well enough. Right. And, you know, and in, in that lack of empowerment just transfers onto the next generation. It's like, you know, it's yeah. like ball and chain on their feet. So, Yeah. So that's what it's all about. It's like, you know, we can we can make that shift. We can change the medical model. We can change the way that we're empowering ourselves and our kids to, to approach the world with confidence in ourselves instead of feeling like we're always behind the eight ball. Excellent. Thank you so much, Elaine. I really appreciate your being here with me this evening. My pleasure, Lana. Thanks. Thank you for listening and sharing. I really appreciate your helping me spread tips that might be of help to someone you know. And remember that why is not near as important as what and how. Have a special day.